So as I began to think about what to do for Mother's Day this year, I was reminded of something that we see repeated throughout the scriptures, and it's that we're to give heed to the instructions provided to us by our parents. And what's interesting about that is so oftentimes mothers are included in that as they should be, and often they're even stressed. I want you to turn to the book of Proverbs with me as we just sort of lay a little bit of groundwork here. I was fortunate to be raised in a family with an amazing mom. She's still around, which I'm thrilled for. Let's turn to Proverbs chapter. We'll start with chapter 1. Let me get there as well. Yeah, (laughs) he remembers the page number. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 8 says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they are a graceful wreath to your head and ornaments around your neck. Jump over to chapter 6, verse 20. It says, My son, observe the commandment of your father and do not forsake the teaching of your mother. Bind them continually on your heart. Tie them around your neck. When you walk about, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk to you. Turn to chapter 15, verse 20. A wise son makes his father makes a father glad, but a foolish son despises his mother. How about chapter 23, verse 22? Listen to your father who begot you and do not despise your mother when she is old, but truth, or buy truth and do not sell it. Get wisdom and instruction and understanding. We'll turn to one last one. How about um, chapter 30, verse 17? It says, The eye that mocks a father and scorns a mother, the ravens will, or the ravens of the valley will pick it out, and the young eagles will eat it. Now that's a great one to end on, isn't it? <laughs> we see throughout the book of Proverbs this reminder to pay attention, not just to what your dad says, but what mom says. What mom teaches us. As I thought about that, I was reminded of something we touched on, and I think it was probably our second week of the study of 1 Timothy, which was where we looked at Timothy himself, because Paul wrote his letter to Timothy. And there are a number of things that we learned about Timothy when we looked into his background. If you remember, Paul met him on his second missionary journey in a place called Lystra and Derby. When Paul met him, He was already a believer, but he was the son of a Greek father who was unsaved, but a Jewish mother who was a Christian. So Timothy, when Paul meets him, was already a Christian, and he actually had an excellent reputation among the Christians throughout that whole entire region. Paul was so impressed with Timothy that, if you remember, he had him him circumcised and had the elders lay hands on him, commissioned him for ministry, and then took Timothy, not just on that second missionary journey, but he stayed with Paul throughout Paul's entire ministry until Paul's death. In fact, it wouldn't be an overstatement to say that of all of the individuals in the scriptures that we see in the New Testament, Timothy probably ranks second to only Paul and the apostles in terms of his demonstration of his faithfulness and commitment to Jesus Christ. 
He's mentioned in, I think, at least eight of Paul's letters. He became Paul's most trusted co-worker alongside him. In fact, we see as we get into the book of 1 Timothy that he left Paul, or I'm sorry, he left Timothy at Ephesus because he could trust him to take care of the things that were at Ephesus. Now you might ask what all that has to do with mothers this morning. Well, it's pretty simple because the Bible attributes Timothy's faith to the faith of his grandmother and his mother. If I turn to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, the first few verses is where we get introduced to Timothy. It says, Paul came to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman, who was a believer, and his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him and he circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And so the very first introduction we get to Timothy, Luke, as he writes this, specifically mentions Timothy's mother being a Jewish Christian. If you turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1 with me, we'll get some more details about this. 2 Timothy Starting in verse, or chapter 1, verse 5 and 6, Paul wrote this regarding his young co-worker, For I am mindful of the sincere faith which is in you. That's also, in fact, the legacy standard Bible translates that as unhypocritical faith. It's genuine, it's real. So Paul says, I'm reminded of that real or that genuine non-hypocritical faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois, and your mother, Eunice, now we get their names. That's quite the privilege in Scripture when you get your name mentioned. And so Paul does that here. And so he says this genuine, unhypocritical faith that lives within you, Timothy, was something that first existed in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And he says, I'm sure that it is in you as well. For this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. So we see that Paul himself grounded Timothy's understanding of who God is, his faith in Jesus Christ, his understanding of the word we're going to see in a second, was all grounded and a result of the faith that Timothy saw evidenced in his grandmother and in his mother. In fact, Paul says that they were the ones who exposed Timothy to the word of God. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. Now get this. And that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Jesus Christ. And so Paul anchors Timothy's faith, his faithfulness, his understanding of the scriptures, his commitment to Christ, his maturity, all of those things... Paul and the Bible anchor in Timothy's mother and grandmother. In fact, it says that they had exposed him to these things ever since he was an infant, a young child. And I don't think that um, it's an overstatement to say that those things were then reflected in Timothy and what we see throughout him, not just in Paul's trust in First and Second Timothy to him, but what we see in his character and who he is and the way that Paul trusted him throughout Acts as well as throughout Paul's letters to him. 
So what does that reveal to us? I think it reveals the power and influence a mother's faith can have on her children. And it's something, again, that we see throughout the scriptures. I got to thinking about some of the other women in the scriptures then. If it applied to Timothy in this way, certainly we must have other examples, right, in the scriptures. And so this morning, I actually want to do that. I want to look at at least five other mothers in the scripture who had an influence on their children. Some of it is going to be through what I call tidbits. It's interesting how I love the little tidbits in Scripture, which means there's these little tiny comments that are made, and we have a tendency just to sort of read over them and don't realize the weight that they carry in what they actually tell us. And so there's going to be a number of those this morning. But I have two disclaimers before we start. The first is that there's quite a few, so I obviously can't cover all of them. Certainly, if we go through a list of five, somebody may say, well, what about so-and-so? What about so-and-so? What about so-and-so? And during our prayer time, if you've got your favorite, and you want to highlight one of them and mention them, then feel free to do it. Bless us all with that. The other thing I want to do is I don't want to discount the role of godly men and fathers in their lives, but this is politically correct. This is um, birthing parent day. All right? We'll talk about non-birthing parents when it gets to June, okay? No, today's Mother's Day. So we're going to talk about mothers. And what's interesting about this is some of the passages we'll look at mention the fathers, but they tell us a lot more about the mothers. There are a couple other passages that tell us more about the husbands than the, the wife or the fathers and the mothers. But there are certain passages that really seem to emphasize the role of the mother in her child's life. And so... I'm not going to discount the role that the fathers have. We're just going to focus on mothers today. All right? Is that okay with you? All right. Let's go ahead and look at our first one. The first one I want to look at is Jochebed or Jochebed. Anybody remember that or know who that was? I see a couple of heads nod. Some are going the other direction. Um, Jochebed or Jochebed was the mother of Moses. And her story can actually be found in Exodus chapter Chapters 1 and 2, you can, you can turn there. I'm going to do some summarizing and then we're going to do some reading. I'm not going to do a lot of analysis of the text. We'll save that for when we get back into Second Tim- or First Timothy. But today's more reflective and there'll be some speculation as we talk through this. But um, in summary, when you think about the story of Jochebed and, and uh, the story of Moses, if you remember Jacob and his 70 descendants all joined Joseph in Egypt And within just a few generations, they had become so fruitful that according to Exodus chapter 1, the land of Egypt was filled with them. So many Hebrews that the Egyptians actually began to freak out to some degree. And the new Pharaoh who didn't know Joseph really freaked out because he thought, man, they are so numerous. What happens if our enemies attack us? And they join our enemies. And he had good reason to fear that because the Hebrews had been enslaved. Why wouldn't they rise up and revolt when they get enough of them, right? And so the king, the new pharaoh, decides that he's going to have to have all the Hebrew uh, mothers kill their babies or at least the nursemaids and, and those that would help them give birth. They were commanded by the king to kill all the male Hebrew babies that were born to keep them from growing population-wise. When the midwives refused to do that, then he issued a command to all the Egyptians. If you see a young baby, male Hebrew, born, throw him into the Nile River. Kill him. And so that's the situation that Jochebed faced. Turn to Exodus chapter 2, or I'm sorry, Exodus, yeah, Exodus chapter 2, if you will. 
We'll pick up where the, where, uh, the summary sort of ended there. But as you remember, Jochebed becomes pregnant with Moses. And she does something, I'm going to say rather heroic, if you will. She defies the king's orders. It says that she hid him for three months, and then she devised this plan not only to save his life, but to continue to be a part of Moses' life. And that's something we might often forget. She didn't just save Moses' life, but she developed a scheme to stay plugged in and to be able to raise him in those very early important years. And so we come to Exodus chapter 2, verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. The woman conceived, that's Jochebed, and bore a son. And when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got him a wicker basket and covered it over with tar and pitch. Then she put the child into it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the Nile, and her maidens walking along the Nile. And when she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid, and she brought it to her. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the boy was crying, and she had pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go ahead. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. The child grew and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. And she named him Moses and said, Because I drew him out of the water. And so what we have is a story of Jochebed who takes the first three months and hides Moses until he's old enough maybe where he's making a lot more noise. Maybe he's starting to crawl around a little bit. So she devises this plan. And as you study this story, you realize that there's probably more to it than all the details were given because she knew exactly where to release the child that Pharaoh's daughter would find her. She sent along her oldest daughter to watch him so that when he's discovered, she could then go to the Pharaoh's daughter and say, Oh, by the way, you're going to need somebody who can nurse. I, I know somebody. It just happens to be her mom. And so she was very scheming in all of this. She did more than just hide him But she went on to make sure that she would be able to continue to raise him. Now, we don't know a whole lot about Jochebed's faith here. We're not not really told a whole lot here, but there is a tidbit, and I want you to turn there. Hebrews chapter 11. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11 with me. I want you to see something. Hebrews chapter 11. Jump down to verse 23. It says, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents. But get this. Because they saw he was a beautiful child and because they were not afraid of the king's edict. Now, look at the second word in that sentence. What does it say? By faith. By faith, Jochebed had hidden Moses. It also tells us that she wasn't afraid of the king's edict, which I'm going to interpret that, and maybe there's some speculation here, that she feared God rather than fearing the king. Now you might ask, how do we know that she had an influence on Moses? Well, there's a couple, couple of things, and we'll get to this in a second in the same passage, so keep your finger there, but I want you to think about something. Moses was 40 when he left Egypt the very first time. 
That means that he spent over three quarters of his life. We don't know exactly when he was weaned. Evidence suggests that he was probably weaned at maybe age three to age nine. Somewhere in there is when his mother, Jochebed, would have given him up to the Pharaoh. So the fact that he didn't leave Egypt until he was 40 years old suggests that he spent at least 30 to 35 years in a pagan Egyptian household that was polytheistic, would not have had a Hebrew underpinning to it. So Moses was raised in this pagan environment, yet he never forgot that he was a Hebrew He had a profound sense of justice. Turn to Acts chapter 7 with me. But kind of keep your finger there at Hebrews and just turn to Acts chapter 7. There's another tidbit here. We often think that Moses had his first encounter with God at the burning bush. And that's all of a sudden where the light went on. And that's all of a sudden where he sort of stepped into a relationship with God and where he sort of understood what his role was going to be going forward. But there's a tidbit that tells us otherwise when you look at Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, jump down to verse 22. Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power in words and deeds. But when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. That visit means... When you think about the way that God visits, it has this idea of caring for, being concerned about. When the Lord visits, it's his way of answering. And that's the way we should understand this, that Moses recognized that he needed to go visit, take care of, in some respects, the Hebrews that were being mistreated. And so, he had it in his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him. And he took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. He had a sense of justice in mind. Now, some may argue he murdered a man. No, he didn't. He protected a Hebrew who was being beaten. And he supposed that his brethren understood. Now, get this. That God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. Did you catch that? It says that Moses, when he went and visited the Hebrews, before the burning bush, before his encounter with God, when God said, I'm sending you to the Hebrews, this is before that and says that he supposed his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him. Moses at that point understood that the Lord was going to use him to deliver the Hebrews. And that's, again, before the burning bush. Where do we think that Moses learned about God? Learned about God so much that he recognized that God was going to use him to deliver the Hebrews from the Egyptians. The only place I can think of is his parents. Because, again, for the last 35 years or so, he was raised in a pagan home. He would not have learned that from them. I would suggest that he probably learned that from his mother during those years where he was being weaned. Remember, Timothy was exposed to the scripture since infancy. Moses may very well have been as well. Now, back to Hebrews chapter 11. Look at verse 24. By faith, 
Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill-treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasure of sin, considered the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea, and he now goes on to Israel. Again, there's some speculation here, but it appears that Moses learned from a very young age about Yahweh and about a relationship with him, so much so that he rejected all of the things of Egypt and instead pursued Christ, as the text tells us here. Where did he learn those things? Again, I believe it probably was his mother. Probably those critical years before being handed over to Pharaoh's daughter, probably again somewhere between age 5 most likely and age 9. Again, he seemed to have an understanding, a relationship of some kind with the Lord before the burning bush because he suspected, he thought his Jews, Jewish brothers and sisters would understand that God was going to use him to rescue them. So we think it all started at the bush. It didn't. So that's Jochebed and her influence on Moses. Another mother, you most likely will know who this one is, but does Hannah ring a bell? Anybody remember who Hannah was? Who was Hannah's son? Yeah, Samuel the prophet. You can sort of get ready to turn to Second or First Samuel chapter one and two. But as we do that, I'll summarize. Hannah was married to a man named Elkanah, who also had a second wife, Penina. Hannah was his favorite, but she was barren. While Penina was a baby machine, she had produced at least ten daughters. I'm sorry, ten sons and two daughters. But Hannah was barren. In that culture, in that time, in the ancient Near East, that was a shame to not be able to produce children for your husband. To make matters worse, every year when they would travel from where they lived to Shiloh, where the tabernacle was, to offer their sacrifices and to worship God, every year when they would do that, Penina would provoke Hannah relentlessly over her inability to have children. She would mock her, we're told. On one of those trips, Hannah is found in the tabernacle and she's weeping bitterly before the Lord, just pouring out her heart. And ultimately at that point she cries out to God and she says, if you'll give me a son, I will dedicate him to you for his life, to your service. The Bible says that when Elkanah and Hannah then returned home, the Lord remembered her, he visited her, and she gave birth to Samuel. She raised him until he was weaned, just like Jochebed did Moses. And then she made good on her promise and she took him back to Shiloh, handed him over to Eli the priest, and he was raised in the temple to serve, not the temple, but the tabernacle, and was raised to serve the Lord in the tabernacle. I want you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 1. We'll see her story. We'll start in verse 24 of chapter 1. Now when she had weaned him, she took him with her with a three-year-old bull and one ephah of flour and a jug of wine and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh, although the child was young. They then slaughtered the bull and brought the boy to Eli. She said, O my Lord, 
As your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here before you, praying to the Lord, for this boy I have prayed, and the Lord has given me my petition, which I asked of him. So I have also dedicated him to the Lord, for as long as he lives, he is dedicated to the Lord, and and he worshipped the Lord there at Shiloh. We get a picture of Hannah's faith as we look at the song of thanksgiving that she gives here. We'll read through that. It says, chapter 2, verse 1, Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is only one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. Boast no more so very proudly. That's probably a knock at Penina. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth, for the Lord is God of knowledge, and with Him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are shattered, but the feeble gird on strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry cease to hunger. Even the barren gives birth to seven, but she who has many children languishes. The Lord kills and makes alive. The Lord brings down to shale and raises up. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low. He also exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and He set the world on them. He keeps the feet of His godly ones, but the wicked ones are silenced in darkness for not the might shall... Or, um, for not by might shall a man prevail. Those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. Against them he will thunder in his heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to his king, and he will exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went to his home at Ramah, but the boy ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. You know how much theology is packed into that song? I don't doubt that. Hannah shared those things with young Eli in preparation. She knew what was coming because she promised the Lord that she would dedicate him to the temple or the tabernacle and that he would minister to the Lord there. And so my guess is that she educated him in the things that he would need to know to worship before the Lord. And we see the kind of things that were on her heart. Like I said, it is packed with theology. And so we see the kind of things that she might have shared with Samuel. It's hard to deny the kind of individual that Samuel turned out to be. Hannah didn't actually abandon him, much like Jochebed did not abandon Moses either. Because we see that she kept him in those early years, and it says that she did not bring him to the temple until he was weaned. But even after she had delivered him to the temple, the text tells us that every year she would make him a robe, something to serve with at the temple. She would make this and her and her husband would travel to Shiloh every year when they would do their sacrifices and she would see Samuel there and she would give him this new robe and encourage his continued ministry. Now, what's interesting is it's probably a really good thing she did that because Eli, the high priest, was a terrible, terrible father to his own kids. In fact, his two children were referred to as vile men. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12. In fact, the Lord judged Eli because of his failure to raise his two sons properly. And so when you think about that for a moment, it's unlikely that Eli was a better influence on Samuel than he had been on his own children. So where did Samuel's influence come from? How did Samuel become probably one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament? 
when he was raised in an environment that would have taught him probably everything other than that. I'm going to again anchor that back in his mother. I believe that's again, because when the scriptures name you by name, there's a reason for that. It's a way to honor and to recognize. And so the scriptures honor and recognize Hannah, likely because of her influence on this young boy, Samuel, in those critical years. In fact, Samuel ranks pretty high in the Old Testament. In fact, he's only one of two prophets that are really recognized in this way. In fact, in Psalm chapter 99 and in Jeremiah 15.1, the Lord ranks Samuel right up there with Moses. In fact, I'll just read this. This is rather interesting. It's another, another tidbit. Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 1. The Lord is angry with Israel. So angry, he's going he's to judge them. They're going to they're see his anger. And he makes this statement to Jeremiah. He says this, Even though Moses and Samuel were to stand by me, right here before me, my heart would not be with this people. Send them away from my presence and let them go. In other words, the Lord says, You know what? Even if Samuel himself were to stand before me and beg me not to judge Israel, as much clout as Samuel and Moses have, I would not relent. That tells you where Samuel ranked in God's eyes, does it not? So again, where did that come from? You can read through the story of Samuel, and again, he's probably one of the greatest Old Testament prophets. There's a lot. But again... When the Lord ranks him up with Moses, it tells you something about him. And I would argue that the way that the scriptures honor Hannah here probably tells us where Samuel at least got his grounding in his faith from his mother. How about another one? You're all familiar with Naomi? Does that ring a bell? Naomi was the mother of two boys, Malon and Chilion. But more importantly, she was the mother-in-law of Ruth. And we'll see here that oftentimes mother's influence doesn't just extend to her own children, but sometimes to her children's in-law, if I can say it that way. Her sons-in-law and daughters-in-law. Her story is found, obviously, in the book of Ruth. Let me summarize that for you as you're turning there. Ruth and her husband, Elimelech, were from Bethlehem. But they were forced to move to the land of Moab outside of Israel because of the severe famine that was found in Israel. While in Moab, Ruth's husband unfortunately dies, leaves her a widow. Her sons then subsequently marry non-Israelite women, Moabite women. Tragically, ten years later, both of her sons then die. And so Ruth is left without a husband, without her two sons. All she has are her two young daughters-in-law by the name of Orpah and Ruth. This did not leave her in a very good position. If you remember, we talked a little bit about this last week. When it came to widows, they weren't necessarily destitute because oftentimes they would inherit the the land of, of the family and many of them could work. But Ruth was in a rather different, or I'm sorry, Naomi was in a rather um, different place. Because of losing her two sons and because of being outside the land of Israel, she wasn't back at her own land. She was left pretty much without anything in the land of Moab. So, what transpires next, though, gives us a pretty good picture of how she responded to that circumstance and that situation. Tells us what kind of woman she was. Turn to Ruth chapter 1, verses 6 through 18. 
Ruth decides that the best thing to do, since she can't care for her own daughters-in-law, so she has no sons of her own, she's going to return back to Israel. And when she does that, she encourages both Orpah and Ruth to go back to their own families in Moab, back to their own parents, to find some other young men to marry, to have children to be cared for. And her plan is to return back to Judah all by herself. So we come to that in Ruth chapter 1, verse 6. Then she arose and her daughter-in-law, daughter, or I'm sorry, rose with her daughters-in-law and that she might return to the land of Moab, or that they might return, or she might return to the land of Moab. And she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. So she departed from this place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, but we will surely return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they might... Be your husbands? Return, my daughters. Go, for I am old and have, uh, I'm too old to have a husband. If I said I have no hope, if I should ever have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you, for the land of the Lord has gone forth against me. So that's the dire strait she's in. And look what happens. And they lifted up their voices, and they wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Then she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord, and she uses the word Yahweh there, which typically in the scripture suggests some type of relationship. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more to her. I'm struck by Ruth's response. Remember this. The Moabites were descendant of Lot's son, Moab. They were polytheistic. Their main god was a god named Chemish, who according to 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 7, referred, is referred to as the abomination of Moab, in part because the worship of Chemish included child sacrifice. In fact, the Bible records that the king of Moab even sacrificed his oldest son, on the wall of the city by burning him to death as a sacrifice to Chemish. That's the culture and the religion that Ruth was raised in by her family. Yet Naomi's faith in Yahweh convinced her to abandon all that she had ever known. She abandons her country. She abandons her family. She abandons her God. And instead she says, your country is going to be my country. Your people are going to be my people. Your God is going to be my God. That is a pretty amazing influence that Naomi had on Ruth for that to happen. It's amazing to see how Naomi's faithfulness to God influenced Ruth, but also played a 
purpose and God's redemptive plan when you think about it. Throughout the book of Ruth, we see Naomi work to secure safety and security for Ruth through Abimelech, a kinsman redeemer. You see this amazing mother in Naomi as she, again, almost is a little bit conniving in the way that she does things with Ruth to make sure that Ruth can be taken care of. And ultimately, as a part of the whole kinsman redeemer process in Israel, through working it out with Abimelech, because Ruth's, Ruth's, or I'm sorry, Naomi's influence on Ruth is continually seen throughout the book. That marriage or that um, relationship ultimately led to the marriage of Ruth being fully adopted by the Hebrew people, but also becoming part of the vital line of the Messiah. In fact, remember, again, being mentioned in the scriptures is a pretty important thing. There's another little tidbit that I'll share with you. Matthew chapter 5, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 1 is the genealogy of Jesus. Ruth is one of only two other people mentioned in the or two other women mentioned in the genealogies of Jesus. Do you know who the other two are? Bathsheba, also a non-Hebrew, and Rahab. So basically what you end up with is this special mention of Ruth being a part of the lineage leading to the Messiah. And it all came about because she learned about Yahweh through Naomi and was influenced probably heavily by Naomi. That's a pretty amazing thing, is it not? Ruth obviously didn't learn about Yahweh through her own family, through Chemish, their own gods. In fact, her sister even returned back to her own people, assuming probably back to her old gods and her old ways. So again, we see this amazing influence of a mother, not just on a child, but on her daughter-in-law. How about another one? Elizabeth. Who was Elizabeth? That's from the New Testament. Yeah, mother of John the Baptist. Her story is found in the first chapter of Luke. Turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Right out of the gate, we're told something about Elizabeth and her husband Zechariah. Now this is one where I mentioned sometimes there's more information about the mother than the, than the father. This is one where there's a little bit more in terms of total number of verses about Zechariah. But there's some pretty significant things said about Elizabeth here. Luke chapter 1 verses 5 and 6 gives us our first introduction. Luke chapter 1 verse 5. In the days of Herod king of Judea there was a priest named Zacharias, that's John the Baptist's father, of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. Now look at this. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. That is no simple thing to say. There's not a whole lot of people in the scriptures that are described as uniquely as that. There are some. But again, they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in the commandments and requirements of the Lord. That's a pretty tall order. And so that's the first thing we learn about Elizabeth is that she was righteous, she obeyed all the commandments, she was faithful in that regard. Now again, contrary to some of the other passages, we see more written here about Zechariah, but there are a number of things that tell us about Elizabeth's faith. Look down to verse 25 of chapter 1. Look at how she, 
She was initially barren, like so many women in the Old Testament that we learn about, like Hannah and others. She was barren, and the Lord, however, visits her, and we find her response when we get down to verse 25. She says this, we'll do this, uh, verse 24. After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant, and she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying... This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. She directly attributes the Lord to allowing her to have a child. Isn't that the way it should be? It wasn't just, hey, it's what happens. She specifically looked at it as, this is the Lord's favor to me. It's a direct act. tells us something about her faith and how she saw things. Look at what happens when Mary comes to visit her. Luke chapter 1 verse 39. Jump down to verse 39 with me. We see something else about Elizabeth's faith here. Now at this time Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Now you notice she's not just excited because Mary is pregnant. What is she excited about? Why did she let out a scream? Because of the fruit of her womb. Mary understood something. I mean, Elizabeth understood something about what was in Mary's tummy. And now, or and how has it happened to me that the mother of what? The mother of my Lord would come to me. What did Elizabeth recognize about Mary's pregnancy? That it was a fulfillment of the promise of the Lord to send the Messiah. It's the only way to understand this. She recognized, just as Mary, when Mary prayed in the Magnificat, she what? She refers to this thing inside her womb, this baby, as her savior. She understood that. Elizabeth appears to understand that as well. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? There's a certain humility there, isn't there? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leapt in my womb for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what has been spoken to her by the Lord. What we see here again is a tremendous amount of faith and a recognition of what's going on there. We see her be emotional about it. It wasn't just something she recognized in her head, but deep down within her soul and her spirit. She recognized that standing before her was the mother of the Lord and that that baby inside her was indeed the coming Messiah. There's one last little tidbit, I'll call it, a little statement that Elizabeth makes that tells us something else too. Look at Luke chapter 1 verse 57, but don't jump on that quite yet. When it came time for John and the family, the friends, the relatives, to name this little baby Moses, or little baby John the Baptist here, it usually happened at the circumcision there, they were going to give the child the name of his father, which is fairly common. But the Lord had said something else. Remember, the Lord had said that this child was to be named John. So God picked his name, right? So you get to this period here, Luke chapter 1, verse 57. Look at what it says. Now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she gave birth to a son. And the neighbors and the relatives heard that the Lord had displayed his great mercy toward her, and they were rejoicing with her. And it happened on the eighth day, when it came time to circumcise the child, that they were going to call him Zacharias after his father. 
Now, what's interesting is Zacharias can't talk at this point yet, but he can certainly motion. He can certainly intervene. But Zacharias doesn't do anything, apparently, according to this. But who is it that actually speaks up? It says in verse 60 that it's Elizabeth. But his mother, Elizabeth, answered and said, No, indeed, he shall be called John. In other words, she was the one who spoke up and said, No, she was the one that upheld the command of God to name him John. And they said to her, There's no one among your relatives who is called by that name. And they made signs to the father. In other words, asking Zacharias, Well, what are we going to do here? They were petitioning him because they expected that he would be, no, 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 it should be called Zechariah, should be named after me. And they made signs to the father as to what he wanted him called. And he asked for a tablet and wrote as follows, his name is John, and they were all astonished. And at once his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he began to speak in praise of God. So who was it that actually spoke up? Who was it that held the standard? God said, remember earlier it described her as somebody who was blameless, perfect in obedience to the law in some respects. We know that that doesn't mean she never sinned because the scriptures tell us everyone sinned. But from a human earthly standpoint, she obeyed God's commands. And what do we see here? The last thing we learn about Elizabeth here is that she obeyed his command. And instead of doing what culture dictates, which is name him after the father, it's no, you're going to name him John. Even when the family and all that said, are you nuts? That's not what we do here. Zacharias, come on, help us out here. And what did he do? I imagine that maybe, and I'm going to speculate here, maybe that tablet said, listen to Elizabeth. She's right. Name him John. Well, maybe not. Maybe I'm taking it too far there. How many of us men, though, would recognize the role that our wives play in holding our feet to the fire sometimes, holding us accountable? I'm not trying to put too much on Zacharias here. After all, he couldn't talk. But nonetheless, Elizabeth stands out as somebody here who fully understood she was a righteous, godly woman. And we see it in everything that's described about her. Even right down to this little tidbit that she was the one that had to say, no, 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 no. Remember, he's supposed to be named John. Look at Luke chapter 3, verse 1. We're going to get a picture of the impact that this might have had on John the Baptist. Luke chapter 3 verse 1 tells us about John the Baptist. Gives us an impression of what might have rubbed off from Zacharias and Elizabeth, his mother. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Itera and uh, Trachonitis, and Licinius, uh, the tetrarch of Abilene. That's a mouthful. In the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every ravine will be filled and every mountain of the hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight and the rough road smooth and all flesh will see the salvation of God. So he began saying to the crowds who were going out to to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you, that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the axe is already... Look at what he's doing. He is preaching the gospel 
to Jews. You go through the rest of this passage and you see that's exactly what it says. Verse 18. So with many exhortations, he preached the gospel to the people. But when the Tetrarch was reprimanded by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the wicked things which Herod had done, Herod also added to this to them all. He locked up John in prison. John was so committed to delivering the message of the gospel that he lost his head physically as a result of it. Where did he learn? From his parents. No doubt, in part, from Elizabeth. Jesus himself, and his kind words about John. Look that up yourself and you can see the almost no one greater than John the Baptist, according to Jesus. Where did he learn it? I suspect mom and dad had an influence on him. One last one we'll look at. This one has no name. Well, she had a name, but we don't know what it is. It's the mother of King Lemuel. Anybody know who that is? It's a strange one, isn't it? You might not be familiar, because we're not told what her name is in the Bible. She's only mentioned one time, and she was a mother of a king we know nothing about. However, you're familiar with the wisdom that she shared with her son, because it's what we see recorded in Proverbs chapter 31. Turn to Proverbs chapter 31 with me. Proverbs chapter 31. Look at how it starts out. The words of King Lemuel, meaning he's the one that wrote this, the oracle which his mother taught him. Did you catch that? How many of you, when you've read through, you know, the virtuous woman of Proverbs 31, recognized that while it may have been penned by a king, the words that he wrote down were the words that his mother had taught him. And in fact, he didn't just paraphrase, because if you look at the way that it's written, it's written with her words. What, O my son? And what, O son of my womb? And what, O son of my vows? Do not give your strength to women. These are the words that he took, I'm going to assume, verbatim from his mother, and wrote them down. So what he did in Proverbs 31 is he wrote down what some, um, the very things that his mother taught him. And what we see is there's two parts to this proverb. The first part, the first nine verses, she warned him about the dangers of sexual immorality and drunkenness which destroy kings and lead to injustice. She also warned him to stand up for the needy and to judge righteously as a king. She taught him how to be a godly and a righteous king. Warned him about what would befall his kingdom. Warned him how to take care of the people. In the remaining verses, the next 22 verses, she taught him the virtues and the value of what it meant to find a virtuous, godly wife. That's what we typically refer to as the virtuous woman from Proverbs chapter 31. I'll let you read through those verses on your own, but they're remarkable. And again, what I'm struck by is that we know very little about King Lemieux. We know more about his mom than we do about him. Because her words are written here for us. He was apparently so moved by what his mother had taught him that it's the only proverb that he penned. And he saw fit to pen it so that he might share it with others, including us. Talk about being moved. How many of you have shared wisdom that your mother shared with you? It's usually a pretty powerful thing, is it not? When something you've learned from your mom is something you see fit to share with others, and that's exactly what we see here. Again, we know more about his mother than we do about him. 
So, we only looked at five. There's plenty more. You can look them up on your own and study through them. But the thing that I find remarkable about this is each one of the individuals that we've gone through this morning, not just the moms, but the children, seem to reflect the faith that they probably learned from their mother. That tells us the significant role that mothers play in the lives of their children. Now, again, that doesn't discount husbands and fathers, but I know when Amy and I married, one of the things that convinced me to marry her was I wanted a mom who I could trust raising my children. As crass as that sounds, I was very analytical. You know, when God said to Adam, Dude, you can't do it alone. You need a helpmate, buddy. I took that literally and seriously. And so when I looked at Amy, I thought, This is a woman that I can trust. Because I knew that I'd be working outside the home. I knew that I wouldn't be around my kids all the time. And I would need a helpmate that I could trust to raise my children with godly influence. And so I looked at Amy and said, I think she'll be a good mom. That's what the scriptures teach. I came across two articles, and we'll wrap up with this. Two articles, one yesterday and one this morning, that I thought were timely. God kind of does this sometimes. The first one was a small article this morning about how teenage or young conservatives have better mental health than liberals. And the reason I thought that was interesting why I tied in today is because, face it folks, in conservative circles... That is more dominated by those of Christian backgrounds and understanding and Christian worldview, plain and simple. That's what forms the basis for conservatism. And it makes sense that those who are raised in a conservative home by a conservative mother and a conservative father, more often than not, are going to be more mentally stable than those who are raised in an environment that is contrary to those biblical values and teachings. And that's exactly what the science is bearing out. So you want your kids to be healthy and happy? Much better chance when they're raised by a Christian mom. Much better chance than they're raised by a Christian mom. The second article was when I came across the other day. It was titled this, Most Americans Raised by Christian Moms Are Still Christians Today. Now that would make sense because if you're raised in a Christian home with a Christian mom, better chance you're going to be a Christian. But what's startling to me about that is that when they looked at atheist families, children raised by atheist moms and dads were far less um, common, it was far less common for them to stay atheists. So when you compared those raised by a Christian mom, they were much more likely to stay Christian, meaning not give up their faith, than those who were raised by atheist moms. They were much more willing to give up their atheism. What does that tell us about the influence of a mom? That when a mom can share her faith with her children, they are much more likely to adopt and keep that faith than those who are raised without. That says an awful lot about the power and the influence of a mom. And so, moms, I know that um, sometimes moms, it's, it's tough, especially if you have children who you're still struggling with. Maybe you have children who are still, you're hoping and praying that they'll adopt your faith. But hang in there. Hang in there. Dads, trust moms. Encourage moms. Realizing that more oftentimes they can have a greater impact than we do. Especially since God wired them a certain way and they're oftentimes around more than we are for whatever reason. So, this was a, a fun one for me because again, just looking at these different moms reminds me of my own mom and the impact that she had on me. And especially as I look around here and I see the great moms here and the influence you have all had on your children so rather than come to you and give you a charge to go out there and you know 
thought I'd just do something that was much more encouraging to say, keep having that influence, moms. The scriptures bear out the power of that. Does it not?